Thank you so much, Faye Cole. Wasn't that beautiful? I think I could wake up to that just about every morning. Well, good morning. Happy Tuesday. I don't get to say that very often, but glad you're here and that you chose to wake up early to be here. Um, A Time article came out in September of 2006. Looks something like this. It's right there in the middle. Does God want you to be rich? And there's several books there along the side. Your best life now. Who wants to wait? We want it now. Eight steps to create the life that you want. Why wait for heaven when you can have your gospel or your, your mansion now? Is kind of the idea. In that article from 2006, I think I was about five when it came out, it says, Why gain the whole world and forfeit your soul is the text that we oftentimes remember, but they kind of rephrase it. Why not gain the whole world plus your soul? Doesn't that sound better? Why would an awesome and mighty God want anything less for his children? And its signature verse could be John 10.10. I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Amen. So this idea of the prosperity gospel. Some have defined it this way. A religious belief among some Christians that financial blessing and physical well-being is always the will of God for them. And as a result of this gospel, faith, positive speech, and donations will increase. It's also known as the health and wealth gospel or the gospel of success. Do you believe in the prosperity gospel this morning? Following Jesus, I would submit to you, by no means is a promise of an easy and pain-free life or existence. I believe that's why Jesus told his disciples here in John 16, In the world you will have trouble. That's a promise we don't like to claim very often, right? In this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. For I have overcome the world. But still, we don't like this idea too much of sacrifice. We don't want to sacrifice. We want to prosper. We want the health and the wealth. But you know, to follow Christ requires, on many levels, sacrifice, doesn't it? It requires a character of sacrifice. Oftentimes, it's a sacrifice of relationships, physical sacrifice at times, sacrifice of self-reliance, sacrifice of means and of pleasures, a sacrifice of pride, a sacrifice for the gospel. And we have here in Mark 8, 35, for whoever desires to save his life will what? lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. What does that mean? If you brought your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 16. 
Acts chapter 16, we're going to begin in verse 16, and we're going to read a very well-known story, and I hope it will help us answer some of these questions. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 16, I'll be reading from the New King James Version. It says, Now it happened. As we went to prayer that a certain slave girl passed with a spirit or sorry possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling verse 17 this girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation So here's a girl, slave of the devil, also slave of men, and she's being exploited by both for financial gain. Verse 18, and this she did for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, or it might say greatly distressed or being grieved in your translation, being sore troubled, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. So Paul is annoyed. He's grieved because this girl is hindering the Lord's work. And so in the name of Jesus Christ, friends, there's power in that name. Jesus had given this authority to drive out demons in Mark chapter 16. Paul had healed with the name before in Acts chapter 3. And so now in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ, he casts out this demon. Verse 19, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. The marketplace not only of social and business life, but also the administration of justice took place in the marketplace. Verse 20, And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Magistrates, governors, if you will. Usually two officers, and they had power to punish. And they say, this isn't lawful. Jews could practice their own religion, but they were forbidden to proselytize, to evangelize, to persuade, to convert. Couldn't do it. And then verse 22, the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes That is, Paul and Silas, and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Verse 23, and when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison and commanded the jailer to keep them securely. Verse 24, having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Later, Paul objects because he was a Roman citizen. Why didn't he express that at this time? We don't know for sure. But my hunch was this mob mentality probably had something to do with it. He probably was not given opportunity to speak. So, 
To summarize, they free a girl from demon possession. The people get upset. They take them before the judge. There's this mob mentality. They are stripped of their clothing and their dignity. They are beaten with rods to the point that they are bruised. Their skin has broken open. They are bleeding. And they are dragged over to the prison and put into the inner prison. Now, the outer prison, that may have had a window, may have had some fresh air. The ability to see sunlight, but the inner prison, that was solitary confinement. No windows, no fresh air. Rather, it was dark and damp. The air would have been foul. They put you in chains and in stocks, which were a form of torture. They would contort the body in such a way and then put you and bind you in that way so you could not move and get out of that uncomfortable position. Not to mention the fact that they're already bloody and bruised. And if you have any open wound at all, the last place you want to be is in a place that's filled with with germs and filth. Flies, vermin, things that could come and nibble on you and you couldn't necessarily swat swat them away and they knew that as well. We tend to sugarcoat things. But there was probably human waste on the floor. Often the floors were slanted, partly for discomfort, with big rocks that weren't comfortable to sit on, but partly so that all of this waste could go to the trough and out. So nobody had to deal with it. This is the inner prison. This is where Paul and Silas find themselves. And so I ask you, not literally, but does anybody here feel like they're in the inner prison this morning? You were doing the right thing. You gave up that perfect job because of a Sabbath issue. You were returning a faithful tithe. You were involved in ministry in the church or in the community. You were living a selfless life, seeking to help others. But you were singled out. You were maligned, falsely accused. You were beaten up, thrown to the torturers. In this foul inner prison, and this is your life, and you feel like you have hit rock bottom. I like to listen to preachers, and I was listening to one not too long ago, and he said there was a time in his ministry when everything was thriving, everything was going so well, and he was involved in in the community, and their church was known, and their ministry was known, and everything was just being blessed and getting larger and bigger, and, and everything was on the up and up. And then he said there was some financial crisis that we couldn't have seen coming and, and everything just came screeching to a halt. And he said, I was angry with God. How could you let this happen to me? I was serving you. People's lives were being changed. I was returning a faithful tithe and offering. I was following your word. I was out in the community. Why, God? Why did you let this happen? unforeseen circumstance take place. And then he said, I didn't preach the prosperity gospel. I didn't believe in it. Or so I thought. 
And then he says, one day it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I believe that because I did all the right things, that I would be exempt from certain things. That tragedy and cancer and financial loss, God wouldn't let that happen as long as I remained faithful. I think if we're all honest, we all have asked similar questions. We have all believed at one time or another some form of the prosperity gospel. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It is true, and I believe it's true, that when you follow God and the law and what He calls and asks of us in His Word, we can avoid all kinds of pitfalls, right? Heartache and disaster. And there are certainly rich blessings that we do receive from God. It is certainly true that if I don't drink and smoke or do drugs... God can greater bless my health. That's true. It is true that if I don't commit adultery, my marriage will be blessed in a far better way, right? That's why we tell our young kids in Sabbath school, we call the Ten Commandments the happiness rules. And I believe that. But the gospel is not a free ticket out of suffering. If it were, then the most selfish people on the planet would call themselves Christian. I know for our family, this idea was challenged. When we first came to the Carolina Conference six years ago, and within the first two weeks that we were in that district, an eight-year-old girl in a beautiful family passed away by a very random and senseless illness. And so we were left with those burning questions. Why? What does this say about God and His love and His plan and His decision to do nothing? The whole church was praying and nothing changed. It only got worse. And she passed away. And so my wife and I were in this process of trying to minister to this family and sending text messages back and forth and listening to sermons and and sharing those with them and, and so on. And it was during that time that I listened to another sermon by one of my favorite preachers, Mark Finley, and he shared in that sermon this, this idea of Hebrews 11, the faith chapter, the hall of faith, if you will, that I'd never seen before. It starts out with Abel and his faith. Well, if you stop and look, Abel has such incredible faith that what happens to Abel? He dies. Then it talks about Enoch who has incredible faith and he lives, never dies. Noah has incredible faith and he stays and preaches for 120 years. Abraham has great faith and is asked to go to a land that he's not seen. So one has faith and he stays, the other has faith and he goes. One has faith and he dies, another has faith and he lives. Confused yet? So Sarah has faith and receives a child. You don't think that requires faith? Talk to your grandmother. Abraham has faith and is asked to offer up the same child. Joseph has faith, and God sends him into Egypt to become rich. Moses has faith, and God leads him out of Egypt to become poor. 
All of these opposites. And then in verse 34, it says that some people had faith and escaped the edge of the sword. And verse 37, it says some people had faith and were slain with the sword. And so through all of that, I got to see more clearly that faith has nothing to do with what is happening around you, but what is happening inside of you. Faith is trusting a friend, well-known, that leads me to do whatever he asks, regardless of the consequences, whether it's to stay or to go, to live or to die, to become poor or to become rich. Faith is trusting that God has my best interest at heart. Living or dying is not the issue. Glorifying God is the issue. And so I stopped praying, Lord, if it's your will, heal this person. And I started praying, Lord, if it is for your glory, heal this person. Because I always know it's God's will to heal. I just don't know the timing. It might be immediately. It might be gradually over time. It might be resurrection morning. I listened to a sermon of Mark Finley's entitled Living with Uncertainty. And in that sermon, he tells of his own experience of his health causing an issue. Back uh, when they were doing NY13, he was leaning over in the car and broke a rib when he was trying to pick something up. Not long after, he was doing something else and broke another rib. And so after many tests and, and various things at the doctor's office, he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. But the doctor said at one point, you know, I'm really confused because you're right on the line. Technically, you have to have 10% of those cells in your body for me to diagnose you. And you're like at nine point something all the time. And it doesn't seem to be progressing and, and moving forward. But the reality is, even today, as I understand it, at any point this could progress. And within a matter of months, Pastor Finley could be gone. So he lives with a huge level of uncertainty. But by God's grace, Mark is still preaching and is still serving. But in that sermon that Pastor Finley was preaching, he talks about the thorn in the flesh. We find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 7 through 10, it says, And lest I should be exalted above measure, by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. And if you take that apart, that's scaloops, that's like a spear where they drive it through the body as a form of torture, and you're writhing in pain. This isn't just a scratch when you're out gardening. This is writhing in pain, and you're begging and pleading with people to end your life. Scaloops, thorn. Did God do this? No, he makes it very plain. A messenger of Satan to buffet me, to slap me in the face, lest I be exalted above measure. And then verse 8, it says, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times. Can you think of anyone else who pleaded with the Father three times to take it away? That it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, most gladly, I'll rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So it was in February of 2014 marked a banner year for my wife's extended family, or her, her siblings, I should say. Early that year, Elizabeth's older sister, Emily, son, Edward, started exhibiting some neurological system or neurological, yeah, issues. Tremors, weakness, erratic eye movements. Later discovered that he had a tumor in his left shoulder. So that was a bit of an ordeal. How does a... a just over one year old, not even one and a half, have a tumor in his shoulder. We're not sure. Surgery, everything was successful. But Edward was left with OMS, Opsoclomus Myoclomus Syndrome, in which Edward's immune system continues to attack his brain with the antibodies developed to fight the cancer. So he doesn't have cancer, but now his body is virtually attacking the healthy cells. And the medical community says Edward will have this condition for life. That he'll never be, quote, normal. I remember when this was all taking place. One evening, my wife and I were getting ready for bed. And I said to my wife, Elizabeth, I said, I don't know that I could handle that. I mean, that's one of the toughest things to have to go through, to have your child. Uh, You know, we had a, a, a little son at the time as well, just a few months behind Edward. And I said, I I can't imagine what that would be like. Fast forward from February to April of that same year. We had a bunch of family come. And uh, I come from a family of four. Elizabeth comes from a family, well, four siblings. She has three siblings. So when we all come together, boy, let me tell you, it's family. Which translates into lots of kids, which translates into noise, right? And when all of these... (coughs) Cousins and nieces and nephews were all gathered. We started to notice that our youngest, James, seemed a little bit behind. Now, he's the last of four that we have. Um, And here's a picture of Edward, by the way, with his mother, Emily. But our youngest, James, didn't seem like he was progressing like he should have been. Now, if he was our firstborn, we would have caught it within the first couple hours probably because you're reading those books, you're monitoring everything, you're comparing everything, but by number four you figure, you know, they're going to develop when it's their turn to develop, everything will be fine. But eventually it got to the point that I stayed up one night and I monitored all the things that James should be doing and all the things that he wasn't doing. And so we went to our pediatrician and then we started some blood work and some tests and then they wanted more tests and more tests. So after some blood work and an EEG and some genetic testing, eventually an MRI, in May, we got a phone call. And the phone call went uh, like this. It says, it seems as if James has a condition called Alexander disease. And they said, but don't go look that up on the internet. And this isn't a diagnosis. We don't know exactly if this is what he has or not. It's just this is the closest thing. And so... We just wanted to let you know. Now, if you're a parent, would you go to the internet and type in Alexander disease? 
We found out in just a few paragraphs that it's a fatal illness with no cure. Only 500 known cases since the 40s. And oftentimes when they develop it at the age that James developed it, he was, uh, I don't even think he was quite a year at that point. And, well, he was about his first birthday. They usually don't live past two or three. At that point, we were starting to really struggle to keep his weight on. His weight, weight was declining. They have this percentile graph, you know, and you go to the doctor and your child's in the 43rd percentile, 98th percentile, whatever. At that point... James had a strong gag reflex. He was throwing up all the, the breastfeeding and all the good nutrients. So he wasn't even a percentile. I don't know how that's possible, but he was in the off-the-chart percentile as far as his weight. And so we were feeding him everything that we could, that he could get as many calories as he could and keep them down. And, and sometimes the feeding, uh, oftentimes, the feeding would take about three hours for him to get you know a little bit in and mostly out. A little bit in and mostly out. Did he swallow anything? I'm not sure. And fussy and colic and we finally went to Mayo Clinic and they confirmed yes he has Alexander disease and only because of the love of a mother is he eating better much better uh, at first he wasn't even sitting up didn't think he'd ever sit up he sat up didn't think he'd crawl he crawled didn't think he'd walk he walks he still totters He's going to have his fourth birthday, but he's walking. But then on the 25th of September, that same year in 2014, Elizabeth's younger sister, Catherine, gave birth and delivered their third child, Louis, as a stillborn. So between February and then May and then September, same year, all three daughters all had a a youngest son attacked, if you will. Now, my father-in-law works for the World Church, and I can't help but think that the devil was attacking. Within seven months, in birth order, all three sisters impacted. Just the summer before, the entire family was together. Two cars were supposed to meet us at the airport in a third world country, but there was just the one, and so we thought we would just go the short distance, ended up having a head-on collision. All the luggage went everywhere, uh, but no one was hurt in any significant fashion. We all walked away. Yet in spite of the devil's attacks, by God's grace, we're learning the painful lessons of sacrifice. As God, I believe, is exposing our pride, our selfishness, our self-sufficiency, and our lack of commitment. I believe God's trying to show us that when we are weak, He is strong for God's strength is made perfect in weakness am I saying God caused those things no it was a messenger of Satan but I believe God wants us to come to a place where we can say like Job though he slay me yet I will trust him I mean you think about Job that's incredible And friends, it's through challenges that God grows us. Isn't it true? To get us past our deep-seated opinions. To bring us to a deeper level of surrender. And he's wanting to see if we really trust him.
come what may. And I know that there are many here this morning in the dungeon and you're questioning God and you're wondering why is he so silent and perhaps you're confused at the way things are going. Don't give up. Don't give in. Just keep hanging on to his hand by faith. So let's go back to Paul and Silas in the dungeon. I have to show you that picture of James. That was taken just this summer. In the acuity. I'm not partial. <clears throat> All right, Paul and Silas, we've got to get them out of this dungeon. Still in Acts 16, picking it up the story in verse 23. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison and commanded the jailer to keep them securely. And having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were grumbling and complaining and whining to one another. Is that what your Bible says? No, they were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Friends, by all human standards, Paul and Silas had every right, if you will, to gripe, if you can have a right. They were serving God, they were faithful to Him, yet they were bleeding, beat up, bruised, suffering in the inner prison, yet rather than complain, what do they do? They're praying and singing hymns to God. This is incredible. Acts 5.41 says, Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. And then in 2 Corinthians 12.15, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And so at midnight, God delivers His people at midnight. Amen? And as the Passover and Exodus, God's people are delivered at midnight. The parable of the ten virgins, the bridegroom comes at midnight to deliver his people. So here at midnight, something happens. Verse 26, back in our story, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. Acts of the Apostles 2.15 says, All heaven... All heaven was interested in the men who were suffering for Christ's sake. And the angels were sent to visit the prison. And at their tread, the earth trembled. And so verse 27 in our story, And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposed the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we're all here. Then he called for a light and ran in and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And verse 33, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. And now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. 
Here, God uses suffering and physical sacrifice of Paul and Silas to bring conviction to this heathen jailer. And it was how they responded to the crisis that made all the difference. They were praying. They were singing. And as a result, this jailer and his entire family find Jesus. And what about the grandkids and the great-grandkids and the aunts and the uncles, their friends? What do you think that would have happened in their sphere of influence as they recount the story? Friends, this story challenges me. And the Lord is still teaching our family that in the trials of life, that in the trials of my life, I need to pray. I need to rejoice that I am counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And when faced with trials, I need to sing. And the challenge is ongoing. Just this past fall, we rushed James down to the ER at Mission Hospital. It was feared he was having a stroke. And that night we were gripped with the fact as we were trying to get just a few things before we rushed out the door to go to the ER and and gather up James and and all those kinds of things. The other kids were asleep and trying to get a a sitter to come so we could go. And she was there just that fast. And and in the midst of it all, there was that moment of of panic, of of crisis. This could be it. And I was coming home from prayer meeting when we came to this idea, this as I was talking to Elizabeth on the phone... And I remember getting off the phone with her and just sobbing as I came in the driveway, thinking, I'm not ready to lose him. I'm not ready to say goodbye. And I'm not ready to face those kids in the morning if he's gone tonight and say, I'm sorry, your brother's gone. What happened? Now, thankfully, he wasn't having a stroke after another CT scan was ordered and there was no bleeding in the brain. He was having these... Uh, my clonic jerks, which is like this fast seizure where it's like getting smacked in the face, a, a mini blackout. And so all this time that took him several years to learn how to walk, uh, you know, so-so, he wasn't able to walk and he was having to wear a helmet. And so we were all wearing helmets. And, you know, there's times where you just put on that happy face and then you go in the bedroom and you cry it out and then you come back on with your helmet. But that's been medicated and, and as things are going right now, Um, he's doing a lot better and he's walking. He doesn't have his helmet on. And so, yeah, there's a lot of unknown. But you live for today. And you tell yourself, today is a good day. Why worry about tomorrow? But rejoice in today. But you know, I know that in here, even in this small number that's gathered here this morning, There are much greater challenges than what I'm describing. You all are going through things much heavier than I'm describing this morning. And everyone has their stuff, their own challenge, their own difficulty, and your pain is valid. But whoever said following God would be easy? I know what sobbing looks like. Watching your child suffer is not easy. 
But whoever said following God would be easy? Was it easy for Abel when his brother killed him in cold blood? Was it easy for Abraham when he was asked to give up his son? Was it easy for Joseph when he was sold as a slave? Was it easy for Moses when the children of Israel tried to stone him twice? Was it easy for David when he was hunted by Saul? Or how about the three Hebrews thrown to the fiery furnace when Daniel was thrown to the lion or Stephen was stoned? Or the disciples who all died a martyr's death? Was it easy for Paul who received 39 stripes, beaten by rods, stoned, shipwrecked, perils of wilderness and sea, hunger and thirst, cold and nakedness? No, following God is not easy. Going through trials of this world is not easy. But it is a thousand times better to go through trials with God than without God. I know that much. It's a thousand times better to have hope in a better day coming than to think this world is it. It's a thousand times better knowing God will win in the end. And despite what we are going through, when we are in a dungeon, but we are heard singing, It tells the world, I still trust Jesus. He is my rock. He is my confidence. He is my assurance and my peace and my hope. And in my physical suffering and sacrifice and in your physical suffering and sacrifice, if we can be found singing, if we can impact a life, if we can turn a stony heart to Christ, by God's grace, if we can win some boy or some girl, some man, some woman, some family, I think it will all be worth it. What's the value of a human soul for eternity? I don't know. But I do know that it's worth more than the temporary life on this earth of ease and enjoyment. And if through my suffering Christ can be glorified, so be it. If it requires my suffering for my character to be formed and fit, so be it. Lord, if I can be spent for the souls of others, so be it. Lord, if I am counted worthy to suffer for your name's sake, so be it. But in the process, I don't want to grieve like the rest of the world grieves. I I don't want to throw pity parties like the world does. I don't want to be discouraged and disheartened. I don't want to lose focus or my sense of purpose or mission. But rather, by God's grace, I want to be a witness to heaven and earth of the power of the gospel to change a life. By God's grace, I want to be exhibit A of how a Christian responds in the midst of difficult circumstances. By God's grace, I want to be able to use, want God to be able to use me and my circumstances to shake up the world and bring men and women to Jesus Christ for eternity. And so by God's grace, I choose to sing. There's a song that Greater Vision sings about this story that we've looked at this morning. And the lyrics go like this. Their chains were fastened tight down at the jail that night. Still Paul and Silas would not 
be dismayed. They said, it's time to lift our voice. Sing praises to the Lord. Let's prove that we will trust him, come what may. And the chorus says, God wants to hear you sing. When the waves are crashing round you, when the fiery darts surround you, when despair is all you see, God wants to hear your voice. When the wisest man has spoken and it says your circumstance is as hopeless as can be. That's when God wants to hear you sing. We could just have prayer now, but I think we need to sing. So Ed, come on now, and we're going to sing a song that we know well. So well, I forgot the title of it. What is it? When we all get to heaven, and the words will be on the screen. And I invite you to stand as we sing a few verses of this song. Thank you for leading us. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you will be with each individual that is here this morning, every person that may be joining via live stream if they're streaming, whoever is in pain, who is hurting, who is questioning and is unsure about their future. Lord, I pray that we can trust you with our future, that we can trust that you do have our best interest at heart, that we can trust that in the midst of these trials, you are growing us and that people are watching how we will respond, what we will do. Lord, may we pray. May we sing songs of praise to you in the midst of our trials that we and those around us may be changed for eternity. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.